in a hierarchy, people tend to tell things rather than to ask questions. And the consequence of that is subordinates who know stuff about particularly safety or poor quality have no incentive to tell the doctor or the boss that something is wrong, so we keep doing damage because the boss says, well, why didn't you tell me? And the answer is you never asked, and whenever I tried to tell you something, you didn't listen or even punished me for bringing bad news. That's the voice of Dr. Ed Shine, psychologist, MIT professor, originator of organizational behavior, and author of countless books, including his seminal classic, Humble Inquiry, The Gentle Art of Asking Instead of Telling. We're going to hear from Dr. Shine later in this episode, which is all about why we so often give bad advice. And you are listening to The Stimulus Podcast. Hello, 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 my friends. Welcome back to the show. I am Rob Orman. And in my day job, when I'm not making this podcast, I'm a certified executive coach helping physicians, clinicians, and high-level performers get unstuck, work through burnout, and elevate their lives and careers. If you want to talk about one-on-one coaching and see if it might be just the ticket you're looking for, you can find me on my website, roborman.com. And on that very same website, you can find a few freebies, some free resources, my four favorite documentation templates, and the quick and dirty guide to calling consults. And now to the matter at hand for today's show. We are full of good advice. We, I'm talking about we, you, and me, everybody, all of us. We're full of great advice, you might say. And when we hear a problem that pops up in conversation, I'm like, oh, right, that advice is just so ready to come out because here's what you should do. Here's the answer. We're natural problem solvers. It's just how our brains are wired. And professionally, we are heartily rewarded for problem solving. So it becomes almost a reflex. Problem presented, solution offered. And there are indeed times when an immediately directive answer is needed. And some of those situations might be coming to your mind right now. But often, advice or an answer or the answer, we might think, we got the answer, gets just plopped right down in the middle and so often serves as a premature closure for both us and our fellow conversationalists. And in this pod, I'm going to present two interrelated concepts that push back against our seemingly ingrained habit of answering as opposed to questioning. And those are the advice trap and humble inquiry, both titles of incredible books that are canonical in the coaching world. And canonical, I'm not even, I'm not using that lightly. That's an understatement. So first, the advice trap. This was written by Michael Bungay Stanier, and it centers on mitigating the all-too-common habit of just jumping right in and giving advice. And instead, it says, hey, stay curious just a little longer and ask more questions. That's kind of the refrain throughout the book, huh? Stay curious a little longer. Now, that might sound simple, you know, stay curious. I'm a curious person. I can stay curious longer. But once you start noticing this, You can feel your curiosity, patience, reserves deplete so quickly because once we see a path that makes sense, we, and I'm going to include myself and we, I, we start running on curiosity fumes. And 
many of us, most of us, love to give advice, lay it out there, tell other people what to do. But really, we are so often full of, here it comes, wait for it, bad advice. Not that the advice itself is inherently incorrect, but when someone gives advice, they're doing it from their perspective, from their sensibilities, their upbringing, their ethics, their mood of the moment, recent experiences, the current issue seen through their lens. Now, sure, our advice works some of the time. You've likely given good advice or great advice. And there are certainly situations when advice is directly asked for. But Our advice works less than we think it does. There's a few reasons for this. First, when we dish out advice, we may very well be giving a solution to the wrong challenge. And we think that the first problem is the real problem, but it's often not. And for the sake of argument, let's just say that the first problem presented to us is in fact the real problem. When we jump out with advice like a frog catching a fly, odds are the answer that we give is going to be second rate. It's going to be so-so. It's going to be middling. Why is this? You're a smart person. You know what? If you are a stimulus listener, you possess intelligence of extraordinary magnitude. It's just a known fact. So why is our advice more likely than not suboptimal? Because we don't have the whole picture, we make a lot of assumptions. And there's a bias here, a self-serving bias, where we are disproportionately delighted with what popped into our heads and think our ideas are amazing, that our advice is the cat's pajamas. We're also prone to assume that we have a complete understanding of the issue and the context, but the odds are that we don't. Yet. How do we think we add value to any interaction? You know, you're, you're out to lunch with your friend or you're in a meeting or whatever. You're, or you're talking to a subordinate, a direct report, or your superior. How do we think we add value to any interaction? By offering our advice. And here's another catch. Early and easy advice can paradoxically demotivate the other person. Because what motivates people? Autonomy, mastery, purpose. Can you tell someone their purpose? Can you tell them what's important to them? Let me apply this to coaching, what I do in the daily. One of the fundamental concepts of coaching is that the coach probably doesn't have the exact answer that the client is looking for. The coach helps bring it out. And one reason for that is that no one will know the best answer for you as well as you will. Now, granted, sometimes there are frameworks or facts or just, you know, content you won't know. But when it comes to making a decision or just kind of untangling different ideas, the best coaching for me, I find happens when I tell less and ask more. Because what does asking do? What does a mindset of curiosity provide? It provides a space for someone to hear themselves. I'll say that again. It provides a space for someone to hear themselves. And that's going to apply in any situation. I was just talking about coaching before, but any interaction. And that might sound kind of strange, you know, the space for someone to hear themselves, right? I'm I'm with myself all the time. This is the most common voice I hear, but so often our thoughts are kind of jumbled up. 
or is yet unformed, and we have this unsettled sense that we want to head in a certain direction, or maybe there's a nascent ambition that we feel, but we just, we don't know quite how to start or where to start or what exactly it is that we're thinking. Imagine that there's a conversation going on, you know, not just in the context of coaching, but, you know, when you speak to anyone else, professionally, personally, and someone comes to you with a challenge, they're stuck. Now, imagine that you're able to watch this conversation and see the flow of the conversation as a fly on the wall. What's the difference between responding with, ah, you're stuck. Well, just do this. It'll get you unstuck versus, ah, you're stuck. Tell me more about what's going on. Ah, okay. All right. So that's going on. What else? What else is going on with this? The second method builds the picture for you and also helps the other build the picture for themselves. Think about this. How many times have you found it helpful to talk something out and just hear yourself say it and put it in context or certain frames and your understanding of what was going on in your head has become so much clearer? Stay curious a little longer. Ask a little more. Flesh out the picture. Which brings us to the second concept of this pod, humble inquiry. We heard Dr. Ed Shine or Edgar Shine in the opening of this podcast. And I tell you, he was, if not the leader, one of the original thought leaders in the realm of organizational culture and communication. And humble inquiry was, I still say, is a revolutionary form of communication where we prioritize asking genuine curiosity-driven questions rather than telling, advising, or sharing our own experiences. Oh gosh, how often does that happen? When you're in a conversation and, oh, let me tell you about when this happened to me or what I did. It's so easy telling, advising, sharing our own experiences. Now, sometimes putting it in context is fine, is called for, but probably less often than it happens. And as far as asking questions goes, this is all undergirded by curiosity-driven questions. It's not just asking questions to fill a silence. Sometimes silence is the most important part of a conversation. The humble inquiry is a mindset of interest, humility, and really at its core, a desire to understand. And this is in line what we discussed in our newsletter last month with the mental frame that every patient has special knowledge, and it is what brought them to see us. Contrasted with the mindset of, we have special knowledge, which is our clinical acumen and the stuff we know, and we are going to just give it to them and it is going to be such a value added. It is most certainly, right? That is the value proposition of, oh, we know this stuff. We know these things. But often the key to a successful interaction with the patient is getting to a point in a conversation where we've gotten the true essence of what that patient wants, why they are here, what their anxiety is. And they say, that's exactly right. You've got it. And I will put a link to that newsletter and newsletter sign up, et cetera, in the show notes. But back to asking questions. It's not so straightforward. And Ed Shine says this in his book. He says, we all think we know how to ask questions, but upon examination, it turns out that asking a question to which you do not already know the answer is a complex and risky task. And the risk lies in vulnerability the openness to new ideas and exposing that you don't know. And also, and th this can sometimes be the hardest part, the willingness to let go of preconceived notions. This is 
I'm going to open a door. I don't know what's behind it. And let's just see what happens. And that is what Ed Shine championed throughout his career. And Ed Shine died in January of this year at the age of 93. And shortly before his death, my good friends, Paul Jun and previous guest on Stimulus, Dr. Jeff Riddell, sat down with Dr. Shine for a few minutes to record an interview on how he thought the concepts of humble inquiry apply to medicine. Although what he's going to talk about isn't just medicine, it can apply to anything, but they do get into some medical specific situations. This conversation was going to be part of another project with Nobel laureates and thought leaders, which never ended up seeing the light of day. So we have some archived audio for this that we'll be bringing out on the show over time. So let's let it see the light of day and hear some more from the man himself. Well, we're here this afternoon uh, with Ed Shine. That's the voice of Dr. Jeff Riddell. He is uh, an author of many books, um, most recently a book called Humble Inquiry that uh, both Paul June and I read. He's a very uh, decorated man with a master's degree from Stanford, a PhD in social psychology from Harvard University. He's an emeritus professor in the MIT Sloan School of Management and a great guy. Uh, so welcome, Ed. Thank you. Uh, so tell us about this idea of humble inquiry. What is it? Well, the idea of humble inquiry is really to ask people questions to which you don't know the answer. Now, why, why would that be important? Because I think the condition that, that I see in most organizations, particularly around the safety issue, is that in a hierarchy, people tend to tell things rather than to ask questions. And the consequence of that is subordinates who know stuff about particularly safety or poor quality have no incentive to tell the doctor or the boss that something is wrong. So we keep doing damage because the boss says, well, why didn't you tell me? And the answer is you never asked. And whenever I tried to tell you something, you didn't listen or you even punished me for bringing bad news. So it's that whole set of circumstances that made me try to zero in on the boss should learn to ask the subordinate and ask real questions. Tell me what's really going on. The surgeon should ask the nurse, if you see me doing something wrong, please tell me. Don't just silently let me fail. Mm -hmm. It's all about that communication process that motivated me. So how did you get, how did you come to this idea? I know you've worked with big companies all over the country, um, but how did you figure this out? Well, I figured it out first as a, <clears throat> as a consultant working with companies uh, and noticing that when I tried to make recommendations or tell people how to run a group better, my first client was Digital Equipment Corporation, this very uh, aggressive startup building mini computers and stuff. And they were a bunch of engineers who didn't want to be told what to do, but they wanted help. So I kind of learned that the way to help someone is to help them frame the problem and get them to tell you what's really on their mind. So as a consultant, I learned to ask a lot of questions and discovered that that way I knew in what way I could help. Sometimes by giving answers, sometimes just by reframing the issue and discovering that the 
client knew for himself or herself what they needed to do, and they thought it was very nice that I listened to them or asked them questions. People don't, when they say they need help, they don't necessarily mean they want you to tell them what to do. What they mean is they want a relationship in which they can talk. And that's where a lot of this is headed. Can we build better communication, trusting relationships? So that 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 question of asking a lot of questions, the emergency department, we ask tons of questions. Every day we're asking a million questions, patients, nurses, everyone. Um, you talk in your book about asking the right questions. And so is it really just about asking more or asking right? And if it is about asking the right question, how do we do that? Well, let's <clears throat> let's go back to the definition Asking questions to which you don't know the answer. I think if you look at the questions people ask, nine out of ten are testing something they think they already know, or they're just asking rhetorical questions, or they're asking a question in the form of a suggestion. So I'm saying what you've got to get access to in yourself is your genuine curiosity. What is it you really, really need to know? So let me hypothetically take you as an emergency doctor. Someone comes in with some obvious problems, but you can start by saying, I already think I know what this is. <laughs> or you can start with, I better get a lot of detail from this patient. What's hurting? Where? How much? Where have you been? things to which you truly do not know the answer. And I see doctors saying, okay, I've, I've got it, and then they're no longer asking questions. They're just checking whether what they think they're dealing with is really it or not, and they may miss something completely different. Or uh, in the international intercultural arena, they may offer advice or prescriptions that don't make any sense in that culture. I have a daughter who works with the Hmong people, uh, of whom there are a lot of refugees in the U.S., and she's very upset about this book, uh, The Spirit uh, Catches Catch. You and You All Fall Down, mm -hmm. because she thinks those doctors and those Hmong patients never got into proper communication with each other, and so they each made mistakes. Uh, the doctors prescribed a drug that the patients weren't willing to take. The doctors never understood that the parents thought that this child with a, uh, epilepsy was maybe blessed and divine and that you might destroy that in her by giving her the pills. So they, they needed to get into better communication. They needed to become curious about each other and ask some genuine questions. And that could even be, well, if I give you this prescription, will you do it? <laughs> How often do you actually ask that question rather than just assuming that here's, the, here's what I need to have you do, and if, if you're a proper patient, you'll just do it, and I may never discover that for some reason you can't or won't, and therefore you won't get the help you need. So the, the other way to put this is, can, can you as a doctor start with, I'm facing a human here rather than a broken bone? 
start with that assumption. And I have to develop, even though it's only maybe two or three questions, I have to develop a human relationship before I will get the necessary information on what's wrong and how to treat it. And to me, those are slightly different tasks. Humble inquiry is, let me get to know you a tiny bit. Not just your name, but where do you live? You know, what do you do? Are you in good condition? Those are more human questions. And it seems to me the reason for them is not humanity. The reason is to get better information. It's a very practical reason for, to have humble inquiry. If, if I have a relationship with the patient or my subordinate or the tech or the nurse, they'll tell me stuff that ordinarily they might not if we're just two strangers in a hierarchy. And that comes out of curiosity. And the recognition that I'm doing this to be a better doctor. I'm not doing this to be a nice guy, which is where often people say, well, why are we wasting time on this? You're not wasting time. You're building a necessary relationship in order to do better medicine. And it's the same as the airline's pilot. This guy who landed the plane in the Hudson tells this very interesting story that he learned that what he had to do with his new crew, which would be the co-pilot engineer, the flight attendants, is how he structures what they're there for. He says, what we're here for, first things out of his mouth, is to get ourselves and all these passengers back to their families. <laughs> That's our job. Flying the plane is incidental. The job is to get back safely. And he thinks that makes a difference to get a mindset. Our job is to get this patient well and back to his family or her family, not to fix the broken bone. It's, it's a mindset toward the whole human being. And I think that's what's missing so much in, quote, professionalism. Professionalism means I don't have to know you. You know your job, I know my job, we just do it. And that wipes out the communication and the trust. The next question you're going to hear comes from Dr. Paul John, emergency physician at the University of California, San Francisco. What I wanted to know was perhaps if there are examples that you've seen where people have done it wrong, or if there are ways that you've seen that are more successful. Because I feel a lot of physicians, they learn that through time, through experience, um, whether if you have a mentor that can actually show you the ropes and say, well, this is the family card that I'll pull out whenever I uh, encounter this problem, if it arises with a communication with a specialist, for instance, or a consultant. Well, I... I keep thinking, though, that in your head is a notion that there are formulas, and I think maybe there aren't, except that original formula, a question to which you don't know the answer, and it's paradoxical. When you said to that surgeon, if it were your family, what would you do? You really don't know the answer. He might say, if it were my family, I'd let the kids stay overnight, and I'll come in tomorrow. And then you'd, you'd know <laughs> more about that surgeon 
and you know that that didn't work, but you have new information about him. And that's what you didn't know before, that he was a hard ass, and no matter what you did, he wasn't going to come in. You've learned that. So the, this notion of I've got to ask something where it's a little bit unpredictable, but I'm putting the burden on the other person to, to reveal something more of him or herself, and that can be a question, it can be an assertion, it can be any number of things, but it's very situational. So what I would say is try to think your way into how to personalize the situation. That's the key. How can you personalize this? What kind of question or what can you reveal about yourself or what can you say or do that would break the professional mold and say, hey, you know, can we talk for a minute just as a couple docs here? So did I clarify that humble inquiry is not a formula but an attitude of curiosity and personalness? I think you did. And again, make the point this is not about being nice. It's about getting crucial information to do the job. Can you also speak a little bit about hierarchy? In the emergency department, we all have our assigned tasks and responsibilities and duties, but sometimes they can lead to barriers to effective communication. And are there any solutions um, to overcome those barriers? What I see maybe most of all is that once you're in charge, you put on blinders somehow. I'm the boss, now I have to tell. I'm supposed to know the answer. So for me to show humility is a denial of my role. So you were asking, how, how does the subordinate get at this? I, I often wonder whether what the nurse could say to this surgeon who's always, you know, the god in the operating room, what could she say to open this channel of communication? And maybe the way at it is to try to get at the interdependency. Could, could she say, uh, doctor, before we do this, are there any things that you're depending on me to do? Use the word, are you dependent in any way on me? Hmm. Because that might not have surfaced in his consciousness. Well, I want you to hand me the right instruments, of course. But is there any, are there any other things where you're counting on me? And I think that is a, still within the range of the profession. It's not an insubordinate remark. It reframes the whole interaction. It reframes the whole interaction. From our standpoint as doctors, as being that chief, for them to reframe that would really help us to see how interdependent we are. So I would try to train all the subordinates in the system to not be afraid to say, are you counting on me in any particular way? The very act of saying I'm depending on you humanizes you. You're no longer the professional nurse who always knows how to do this, but you're suddenly a human being, and this, this doc recognizes that I'm doing this for this patient and, and for this process. 
Outstanding. Uh, Ed, thank you very much for this conversation. Well, I've enjoyed it thoroughly. I hope, I hope it goes somewhere. I'll have to say that that last comment kind of got me. And what Ed Shine worked for, what he just said, and he just said, well, I hope this goes somewhere, is that we at least think about this, right? Nobody's telling anybody to do anything here. Just asking. So as we wrap up, let me leave you with this challenge. The next time you engage in a conversation, particularly in a setting where you're accustomed to telling, try implementing the principles of humble inquiry. See if you notice the advice trap. And does just paying attention to those things influence in any way the dynamics of the conversations and the outcomes that unfold? And that is it for today. To learn more about one-on-one coaching, to get complete show notes for this or any other episode, sign up for our newsletter, and find the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. Maybe not, maybe it's happening. Just head over to our website, roborman.com. Until the next time, my friends, be well and keep on rocking.